We are in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I know you've heard that. It's at the heart of the Old Testament law. And Jesus said it was at the heart of all the law. It was, he said, the first and the great commandment. You wonder why. Why is this the first and the great commandment? Is it great? Is it important? Because of what it does for God? Does God require this kind of love from us? Or is it great and important because of what it does for us? So I'd like us to think about this commandment today. You remember Deuteronomy is a look back. It's at the end of a 40-year journey in the wilderness. And Moses is now rehearsing what's happened. He rehearses the law. In fact, Deuteronomy means the second law. It's the second giving of the law. That's what the title means. He rehearses all their failings, their stumblings through this 40-year journey over and over and over again and how God over and over and over again shows them grace and mercy. So, Now, in this chapter, he's rehearsing what's been given and has already been recounted in Exodus chapter 20, what we call the Ten Commandments. So here's what I want to ask you to think about. What does God want from you and me? When you come right down to it, what's he looking for in human lives? And I'm going to look at it in three ways. The God behind the law, the law behind the law, and then the love behind the law. I'm going to be focusing on verses 6 through 10 as we go through this text. So who is this God behind the law? As we read this text, I want to point to a kind of a puzzle. It might make some think that God is kind of wishy-washy, kind of a pushover who lets lawbreakers go. Or is he the kind of God that strictly enforces his law? The Decalogue here, the Ten Commandments begin... You've heard these words before. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 8, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. Only one God, one God, and no idols. And really, this law is the foundation of all moral law. Without a moral law giver, there can be no moral law. Moral law doesn't just arise out of nature. The kind of law that we can 
impose on societies, even on other cultures other than our own, comes from a creator who is above every culture and to whom we are all accountable. In fact, what's interesting is that the character of the lawgiver shapes the lives of the worshipers and shapes the lives of the cultures that honor that God. I think there's a myriad of examples. I could name, for example, a nation or a culture where the people worship a God who is crafty. They smile when they read his exploits, where he is cunning in getting what he wants. He's able to fool people or seduce people, and he's able to get away with it. He's so clever. He's so smart. What does that do to the people who worship him? It's not surprising that somehow in that culture you'd find people who want to be someone who, well, has a knack for getting away with doing things, getting what they want, and being clever and crafty enough that you're never caught. Someone who can fool people or seduce people and get what he wants. The God we worship affects the way we are. I don't know if any of you saw this documentary. I saw it recently. I think it's made by a German filmmaker who somehow was able to embed himself in ISIS. He actually lived with these ISIS fighters. You know, watch them eat and talk and discipline their children and and fight. It was horrifying and at the same time strangely enlightening to see this. But the thing that struck me was that he was with them all the time and they were driving in their cars and one of these fighters put in a CD, a worship CD. He was listening to worship songs. Worshiping not the Lord God of heaven and earth, but their own God. And he was singing along and he was enraptured as he sang. Such sincerity with his whole heart he was singing, but the lyrics were about bloodshed, about his joy in beheading the Jews and Israel, about violence and how he couldn't wait to see their blood run through the streets. The God we worship affects who we are. It shapes worshipers and it shapes the culture that worships them. And let's not think that it's only these kinds of cultures, these examples. I think the same is true if our God is nature and we think matter and energy is all there is. The same is true if we think that fundamentally all there is is a fight for survival and that the strongest win. That shapes us. It shapes our values and our dreams. Same is true if we think money is all there is or pleasure is all there is. If those are the gods we worship, they shape us and they shape the culture. So the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 8, that we become like the God we worship. And we know that that's true. Our values reflect the values of that God. Our morals, our goals reflect the character of the God we worship. But every law here in the Ten Commandments is a reflection of the true God. And the true God is the creator of heaven and earth. That's how the Pentateuch introduced him in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Let me tell you who God is, he's saying. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That's what I mean by God. Not a particular cultural God. Not a God of one nation or one tribe. Or not a personal God that you might choose to follow. This is the God who made all that exists. And his character is reflected in all of those Ten Commandments. And following those Ten Commandments, honoring them is really based on our love, our worship of this God. That's what shapes us. And so, I mean, you can look at them. We honor one day in seven because we consider him to be so high and holy and worthy of worship that we devote ourselves to that. We honor marriage and sexuality because it's his creation. 
We see that our sexual choices, our marriage choices are not just vertical. You know, do I like this? Do people say it's okay for me to live with others? Am I happy with it? Well, then I'll do it. No, we see that there's always a sacred dimension. There's a horizontal dimension. What does God think of this? What does this do to the glory of God's creation? It shapes the way we view life itself. We keep our promises because our God is faithful. We avoid slander because God says in His Scripture He hates it. The character of our God shapes our view of these laws and how we approach them. Well, so far so good. I think you're familiar with all that. But now let's turn to a mystery. Verses 9 and 10. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What if we break his laws? Well, God is jealous. That means he's, he's fierce in, in enforcing this fundamental law that love, our heart's affection, belongs only for him. He's jealous, he says. And his jealous anger, we might say, lasts for generation. This breach, this breaking of this law is so deep, so grievous, that it can't be just played out in one generation. It lasts generation after generation after generation. There's several illustrations in Scripture itself, but maybe the simplest, the one that we know the best, is David himself, King David. Remember how he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says in verse 10, God says to David, the sword will not depart from your house. Why? Because you took Bathsheba as your wife. And you read the history, that's exactly what happened. There was rebellion and dissension and trouble and war and death in the household of David for the succeeding generations. Or maybe more close to home, we could say it's like slavery. I'm always interested in the insight that Abraham Lincoln had into Scripture. It's clear that he saw the carnage of the Civil War as God's judgment on the nation. Let me just quote from his second inaugural address. He said this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil, until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He seemed to recognize this idea, this principle, that individually or even cultures that Walk away from God, pay a penalty, and this penalty lasts. It's like things we see in families. Familial abuse, how that continues on. Alcohol abuse, how that continues on. Pornography or immorality or violence becomes part of a family. Sometimes becomes part of a culture. Generation after generation, we present ourselves to God for judgment. Well, you've heard that before. But then look at verse 10. But... But showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why? And what does this have to do with the previous verse? The word loving kindness is rich, it's translated variously. 
I think the text that was read said steadfast love. It's that word chesed in Hebrew. It sometimes is translated just love, sometimes mercy because it has within it the component of overlooking sins. Not giving the punishment that is due for sins. It also is, has the component of grace in it. It's undeserved favor, so sometimes it's translated as kindness. And in our translation, it's loving kindness, a word coined by the King James Version. And to whom is this loving kindness shown? Well, it's to those who love him and keep his commands. Notice this, to those who love him and keep his commands. Here's the puzzle. If we keep his commands, why do we need mercy and grace? Look at us, Lord. We're doing everything you want perfectly. Aren't we just great people? Aren't you just so happy that we're your people? Don't you feel proud that we're your people? We do everything you tell us. If you're like that, then why do you need mercy? Why do you need grace? And of course, if they're not keeping the commands, then aren't they just in the first category, coming under the judgment of God? So where is God at in this? So strict in verse 9, so easygoing, almost, well, too soft in verse 10, who doesn't seem to enforce his own laws. Like David, the adulterer who I mentioned before, who's allowed to go free. The law said adulterers were to be stoned to death. And he was not stoned to death. Yeah, he said this pretty little prayer in Psalm 51. Is that all we have to do? Compose a little prayer and sing a song? Offer confession and then we are let go? Is God easygoing when it comes to sin and law-breaking? All it requires is this little prayer. So that's the first thing I want you to think about is the God behind the law. And now let's try to answer those questions by looking at the law behind the law. And the law behind the law is the deep law of God. The text tells us here's the key difference between the two groups mentioned in verse 9 in verse 10. It's not that one group keeps all the rules and the other doesn't. In fact, as you read the Bible, it's clear that no one kept all the rules. Not one man, woman, or child. Christ is the only sinless one who was on this earth that did that. None of us, no Jew, no Israelite, was ever able to keep all the laws. In fact, that's why in the law was a system of sacrifices. There was a way to be forgiven. There was a way to be redeemed. There was a way to restore peace with God. Why would you need that if there was anybody who could keep all the laws of God? So here was the difference. It says in verse 9, how does it end? Those who hate me. There's one group that hates God. You think, oh no, really? There's nobody who hates God. There's a lot of people that hate God. They're indifferent to him. In the language of the New Testament, they're enemies of God. The word means something like indifferent. Sometimes it has the tone of revulsion towards God or despising God. The first group is those who have nothing to do with God, despise God, hate God. The second group, you notice how it ends, by showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me, love me. This is a word that indicates intimate love. In fact, it's the same word that's used to describe the love between a husband and wife. In the Song of Solomon, for example, because it's everywhere, chapter 2, verse 4, his banner over me is love. That's the word that's used here, the same root. And to them, it says, he shows this loving kindness, this chesed, this mercy and grace and kindness that overflows on them. 
So you see, it points us towards that great command that we began with. Those who love him are not a perfect law-keeping people because they're in need of grace and mercy, but they love God and they will not give that love to something or someone else. They zealously guard that love because it belongs only to the Lord God who made them. And so this is God's will for us. Again, you see, in a different way, it's telling us the same thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's how you secure his grace and mercy. And friends, it's all over the place. It's repeated, this law, over and over again. It's the foundation. It's the law behind the law. It's the one thing that God looks for in our hearts. Just in the book of Deuteronomy, this law in one form or another is repeated about 12 times. Did you get it, God is saying? Do you understand what I really want from you? Love me, love me with all your being. That's what I'm looking for. And of course, Jesus made it abundantly clear. He said, this sums up the law. This sums up the law. In the Gospels, he said, this is the great and first commandment. The law behind the law. And there's lots of other rules. There's lots of other laws. But think about it this way. When it comes to driving, really there's only one law, isn't there? Drive safely. Really that's the law. But then they make up a hundred other laws. You know, let's put a white stripe down the road. Yes. And let's put a yellow stripe here and there so people know when not to pass. And let's put up speed limit signs. And let's put up stop signs. Oh, and let's make them wear seatbelts. So hundreds of laws multiply to drive safely. Sometimes we forget that that's the real point of all those laws. But that's the one law that matters. And so here, this is the law behind the law, the real law. God is willing to show grace and mercy to stumbling people like me and like you. Those who want to keep his commandments, who have a delight and a desire to keep his commandments. Why? Because they love him. Because they love him. That's the law behind the law. There's a God behind this law. There's a law behind all the laws, we could say. And then thirdly, behind the law is love. There's a love behind the law. In this law, we see God's strength and blessing. In this law, we see the reason for our worship. I want to finish with that. Why does God want this love relationship? Do you think it's because God is weak and needy, love me, love me, love me, love me. Oh, I need more love. You think that's the kind of God we, we have? Many people think of this, and by people I mean those who aren't familiar with this God, who haven't read the scriptures, and see this as a sign of weakness. Here's God all the time begging for love and attention and demanding that, oh, no one else can be worshipped. I'm jealous. I saw you talking to someone else and it bugs me. Me and me only you have to focus on. How can God say that these laws were for our good? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says this. I'm giving you all this law, he says to the people of Israel, for your good. Is that really so? Is this command for our good or is this for God's good? Is this something God needs? Of course, there are parents who are like that caricature that I'm painting of God. There's parents who are weak, who are needy, who are so desperate for the favor and smiles and love of their children that they fill their loneliness with their children rather than actually being parents who parent their children. Is God like that? But look at how God introduces himself here. Not one who's weak and needy, 
But he introduces himself as one who is the initiator of love, the strong rescuer, the one who comes to those who have nothing to give to him. So, for example, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6. Here's the preface to the Ten Commandments. It's the same preface, by the way, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's an important prelude. I'm the God who liberated you when you had no hope. I'm the God who came to you when you were helpless slaves. When there was a great power ruling over you, held you in chains and made you do whatever that power willed to do. You had nothing to offer me. You had nothing to buy my favor with. And in those circumstances, I came and I gave you life and liberty. And I gave you, out of my free will, the promise of a homeland where you could flourish. That's the God, you see. It's not a needy God. It's a giving God. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we looked at this several weeks ago, verses 7 and 8. He tells the people, don't think I loved you because you're a great people. There's other nations that have a lot more in number and higher cultures than you do. He says, I loved you. Because I loved you, that's all. I chose you because I loved you, and that's all. So this love that God offers to us is a powerful love, a life-saving love. It's for people who are starving for true love, who are chained by loneliness and oh, every other kind of habit that binds them, who think that no one can really possibly love them. And Scripture comes to us, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, and says, we love because he first loved us. It's a strong love. We love because he first loved us. See, our love is really a response to God. It's like flowers turning to the sun in the same way our cold hearts are warmed by the sunshine of God's love, and we begin to respond, begin to love him. Our lives begin to blossom. So no, it's not a weak God. It's the love of a strong God that we're talking about here. And he's the one that's saying the first commandment, the great commandment, is to love me. Here's the second question. Why? Why does God want this relationship of love? Well, because of his love for you. And because he cares for you, he wants to protect you. And he wants your life to be nourished. And this commandment guards that. See, this command protects us. Here's how it does this. I think this is how it works in our lives. Love has the power to expel poisonous desires from our life. Love expels poisonous desires. Imagine a wife who's angry with her husband. You know, She pulls into the driveway with her car, the gas tank's on empty, and she says, oh, empty, I know he hates that. I don't care. Let him deal with it. And she walks in. On the other hand, suppose she's just filled with love for her husband. And she sees the gas tank, it's only down three quarters of the way. She says, you know what, I'm going to top this off because I just don't want him to worry about it. It changes us. When there's love, it expels any selfish thought. It expels sin. Love expels sinful acts. And the love of God expels the breaking of his law, the breaking of his will. So to love God with all your heart, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, just leaves no room false gods, leaves no room for harmful desires. So in a way, the more we grow in this love, we see that this is God's protection from us. I just want to be happy, we say. 
And self becomes God. I just want to be happy. Or we say, I just want what I want. You don't understand. I'm going to do what I want. And then desires become God. But if we love God, we say more than anything, I love Him and I want to please Him, then that love expels selfishness. It expels our desires from having rule over us. So this command protects us and this command also then blesses us. It makes our life and all the relationships in our life flourish because it nourishes them. So God commands us to love him. It's really like someone commanding us to eat good food and stay away from bad food. Be nourished by my love. That's what he's saying. Be nourished in this relationship that you're made for with your creator. Remember some years ago, one of my daughters was really hungry and there was this cart selling paninis. It had like a tomato sauce and some meat on it. And it was a very hot day and this cart was outside and I saw no machinery for refrigeration or anything. And the guy was yelling and screaming and there was a crowd gathering to get it and she was so hungry. She just really wanted that. No, I want that and I want it now. So I bought one for her and as she began to eat without really looking because she was so famished, I noticed that as she pulled away the foil, It was just green with mold, you know, blue-green mold all over. And of course, I grabbed it out of her mouth, threw it in the trash, and said, you got to wait, I'll get you something that's healthy. That's what the love of God is like. It keeps us from filling ourselves up with things that are dangerous and poisonous. It's what Jeremiah says in chapter 2, if I can paraphrase this, why would you drink from muddy puddles when I am like a mountain stream full of cool, clear, bubbling water that will refresh your soul. So God invites us into this relationship because it nourishes our life. And here's the third thing I want to mention. Why should we engage in this relationship? Because that's the only explanation for why we worship. If you have trouble worshiping, if you have trouble engaging your mind and your heart in worship, think on this first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because it's what he wants. It's what he wants, that love. We can't work it up on ourselves, by the way. This great purpose of God was finally accomplished on the cross. The Old Testament promised, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, really in Jeremiah 31 and other places, it said, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with my people. I'm going to take away your cold, stony hearts And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's capable of loving me the way I want you to love me. And in Christ Jesus, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kind of things we sang about earlier, all that was accomplished. Those prophecies were fulfilled for you and for me. Now, not everybody understands that. This may seem silly to you, but I've been noticing how many skeptics mock this particular aspect of Christian faith. They mock a God who requires worship and praise. I don't know if you've seen this. It's in, I've seen it on TV. I've seen it in films, comedy films, old and new. I've read it in books. They seem to think that this is a sign of God's smallness, of his pettiness. The idea of praising God, of worshiping him, to them sounds like God is sort of a spoiled needy, vain person who needs to be told over and over, oh, you're so good. You're so great. You're greater than anybody I know. You're so wonderful. You're amazing. 
And then they laugh at that thought because they're thinking of another human being receiving and demanding that kind of compliments. And yet, I always think when I see this little bit from one of them when they're laughing at our worship that none of them ever laughs at the thousands of love songs which fill the airwaves. Love songs which praise the one who is loved with lavish praise. For example, she's so high, high above me, she's so lovely, Cleopatra, Joan of Arc, Aphrodite. They don't laugh at that. You fill up my senses. Come, let me love you. Let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Let me die in your arms. They don't laugh at that. Why? I think they're sensible not to laugh at that because they know that praise is right and good and really it's irrepressible when you love someone. They understand it on the horizontal sphere, but they don't understand it when it comes to God because the only way to understand it is if you've experienced it, if you've experienced this love. Otherwise, you know, we're like little children giggling and laughing at two lovers who are holding each other and kissing each other because those little children don't know what this is all about. They've never experienced that kind of love. So the skeptics become silly like those little children. But God tells us, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Friends, it's behind all of our worship. It's behind every praise song. It's behind every prayer of thanksgiving and praise that we offer. And it's the only way that we have of understanding praise. When we worship God, when we praise Him, we're fulfilling that first and great commandment. We're entering into that relationship which only the people of God, the children of God, the redeemed of God know. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That love is behind every life, every single man, woman, and child who really longs for grace and mercy for God. That's what our text says. Those are the ones to whom God loves to show his loving kindness. And that command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is what keeps us following the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we love him. Even though the road is hard sometimes, even though there's challenges, even if people oppose us, we keep following him. Because that love is worth it. And it's the chief love in our hearts. May it be so. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you for this command. It's something we need to be reminded of. We read it, we know it, we can recite it. And yet, Lord, thank you for telling us over and over again that this is what you require of us. And then, God, even more, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that you're willing to give us hearts that are capable of being warmed by this love so they can respond with the love you desire from us. Grow us, mature us, perfect us in this love, we pray, so that our lives will be blessed by you and our worship will be more and more perfect. Your holy name we pray it. Amen. Friends, to not be loved leads to a terrible loneliness. It leads some people to do desperate things. On the other hand, to experience a full, rich love makes it feel so natural to do extravagant things. Things that only those who have experienced such a love can ever understand. Friends, God has a love for you and that's my prayer. May God anoint you with his Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. And may this 
love fill you. This love which is, David said, better than life itself. And may it fill your heart with joy and with peace.